This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Are you excited about studying God's Word together this morning? Then turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now for those of you who are regular attenders of Mill City, you know we've been going through a study series this fall called Hard Questions. And we've been looking at several questions. Some of them have been philosophical. Uh, Questions like, uh, do good people really go to heaven? Uh, We have looked at some uh, theological questions like, did Jesus really claim to be God? Or is Jesus really God? We have looked at, at, at some practical questions as well. And today, we come to a question that really, on the surface level, seems very controversial. But the reality is, anything that's controversial in our society, as well as things that are really widely accepted by us as society, every single issue is relevant in the Word of God. And so this morning, we're going to tackle the question, is God anti-gay? This is a real question. It is a hard question because of the society that you and I find ourselves living in. But I would encourage us, especially in the, in the, in the context of such a, a divisive year in American politics and sociology, that I want to encourage you to know that the things that we face today, although they may seem new to us because maybe our generation hasn't faced some of these things before, I want you to know that there really is nothing new under the sun. And that is not me being philosophically great or intellectual this morning. That's simply recounting the scriptures. Uh, The Bible tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. And just as you and I face uh, questions about human sexuality and sexual ethics, the first century went through these things as well. And even our our forefathers uh, centuries ago and millennia ago uh, in the Old Testament dealt with some of these exact same things. So they may be new for us here in America as we're exploring them and asking these questions, but nothing's new to God, and He has spoken on these issues from long past. Now, and I also want to tell us from the very outset that I know that this question stirs up so much feelings of emotion, doubt, and even anger and resentment, bitterness. You, you, uh, you can fill in the blank. And a lot of that is because there are people on multiple sides of this issue who have simply not dealt well with this issue. Uh, There are those in the homosexual community uh, who have taken up arms uh, against people of faith uh, for their belief system and for their orientation, and they have made their beliefs known, and albeit sometimes not very uh, winsomely. But at the same time, if we as Christians are going to be honest with ourselves and with the world, we also have to recognize the fact that the church has not always spoken well on this issue as well. And that we have, we have whiffed at the plate. Uh, we have swung and missed. Um, we have fumbled the football into the end zone in trying to engage our neighbors in this discussion. And so there are those of us in the church and those outside of the church. There are those who have prominent positions on the airwaves and television and internet who have spoken for Christianity and, and have not always done it in a, in a winsome manner. And have not always done it with gentleness and respect. And as Christians, we have to acknowledge that if we have any hope of engaging our gay neighbors. Now, I also want to bring up another point to you before we dive into our text and our outline this morning. Now, I'm going to be using some terms this morning. 
And I want to make sure that we delineate those terms to make sure we understand what we're talking about. I'm going to use terms like same-sex attraction or SSA. I'm going to use terms like gay neighbor or gay marriage or homosexuality. Let me delineate some of this for you. I believe, and my belief system is coming from the scriptures, there is a qualitative difference between someone who experiences same-sex attraction um, or we would say same-sex orientation or homosexual disposition uh, or homosexual attraction. If we just want to throw out all of those terms, you can't explain it. There could be someone here today. Statistics would say there probably is someone in this room today who you experience same-sex attraction. You can't explain it, but you just know from the earliest of ages, you have been wired towards a disposition, towards an orientation, towards being attracted towards the same gender. And when we look at the scriptures today, and we're talking about homosexuality and gay marriage, I want to make sure that you understand that there is a difference between what you're predisposed towards what your attractions are, and an active homosexual lifestyle. On the other side, when I use terms like gay, gay relationship, gay marriage, homosexuality, homosexual practice, or gay sex, what we're referring to in there are people who are actively pursuing and manifesting actions that would be in consistency with those dispositions. And we want to show you from the scriptures today that we're talking about two different things here. And we need to separate those things because we need to know how to minister to those among us who are experiencing this while at the same time giving them hope for the future. And I really do want to tackle both of those this morning. So in answering the question, is God anti-gay? Let's go to the scriptures and let's answer the question from the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth. And in Corinth, uh, there was basically everything under the sun going on sexually. I and mean, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and, and chapter 6, you find out that these were Christian people who were following Jesus, but they were suing each other and taking Christian brothers and sisters to a secular judge uh, to settle their disputes, you will find out that there was incest going on. You will find out that people were sleeping with their father's wives. You will find out that there were drunken orgies. You will find out that there was fornication, sexual immorality, heterosexual immorality, homosexual immorality, and all of this was going on inside the church of Corinth. And so when we say things like, we just need to be more like the New Testament church, we might want to be a little more specific. Which church are we talking about and which specific areas are we talking about? And so Paul is addressing real life circumstances here. And beginning in verse 9, here's what Paul says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
I want to give you two big picture gospel foundations regarding homosexuality from this passage. Number one, God will judge all unrepentant sexual sin. God will judge all unrepentant sexual sin. You see this in verses 9 and 10. Paul says, do you not know? See, it's just an assumption. As Christ followers, you should just know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you could be thinking, well, I'm glad I'm not the unrighteous. I mean, I'm glad I'm not Adolf Hitler. I'm glad I'm not one of those homosexuals out there living in America. And then Paul zeroes in on the heart. Don't be deceived. No adulterers, no sexually immoral, no idolaters, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. So Im- implied in that, not inheriting the kingdom of God, you will inherit something else. And the Bible would call that death, eternal separation from God. And so God will judge all unrepentant sin. He will judge all unrepentant thievery. He will judge all unrepentant lies. He will judge all unrepentant uh, reveling. And he will judge all unrepentant sexual sin. Now, now Paul uses three different terms here uh, to talk about sexual sin. He says the sexually immoral, adultery, and practicing homosexuals. Let me walk through these very briefly with you. The sexually immoral is basically one big blanket terminology that the New Testament uses to basically describe any sexual act between human beings outside of the marriage bed of one man and one woman. That would be the New Testament God-ordained biblical ethic. The only place where sexual contact or sexual experience is to take place is between a man and a woman in the confines of a marriage bed. Anything outside of that narrowly defined parameter, God would characterize as sexual immorality, regardless of with whom you participate. That's sexual immorality. Then there's adultery. Adultery is when one spouse or multiple spouses has a sexual experience or sexual relationship with someone else who is not their spouse while being married. We understand this as society. We understand what adultery is and what that means. And it's the exact same thing in Scripture. And then he says practicing homosexuals. Now, there are two different words here that are kind of combined. And so uh, basically what Paul is getting at is both the active and passive partner in a homosexual uh, relationship. But I want you to see all of this in the context of sexual sin. And you can say, well, maybe, maybe Paul just wasn't that enlightened. Maybe he wasn't uh, as, as refined as some, some more intellectual types or philosophical types. Maybe he needed a little bit more diversity training, right? Uh, maybe he just needed to go through a class or two to understand what it's like to be on the side. But, but what I want to show you very quickly throughout the scriptures is that this is God's sexual ethic from the very beginning. Now, you can go all the way to Genesis chapter 2, which we're not going to start there, but just write down Genesis chapter 2. This is where God defines for us what relationships are supposed to be and what marriage is supposed to be between one man and one woman. And then in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, which is one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament in dealing with homosexuality. The Bible explicitly says in verse 22, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. 
That is a strong term from God there in the scriptures. And then when you turn to Romans, go to the New Testament. This is one of the classic uh, chapters in the scripture dealing with this in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 1, this is a more lengthy exchange, but I want you to read it in its whole context. God is talking about the sinfulness of man. He's talking about their rejection of him as God, that they should have given him praise. They should have given him thanksgiving towards him for all that he had done and created around them. But instead, they followed lies rather than the truth. And so verse 24, Paul writes this, Therefore God gave them up and the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave them, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You get the point? Though they knew God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. As a side note, this would be an indictment upon American culture today. Not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. You may be saying, well, my question is, what about Jesus? Because, I mean, Jesus just loves everybody. And Jesus is so welcoming and so affirming. What, what does Jesus say? Well, that, that's a really great question. I'm really glad you asked it. Uh, go to Matthew chapter 5. H how does Jesus explain God's sexual ethic? Well, let me show you Jesus' standard. In, in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 27, here's what Jesus says about lust. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, for the average religious person, they're thinking, check, yep, never done that. I'm good to go. But then Jesus says in verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. You see, Jesus' standard is even higher than that of the Old Testament. He, he goes from practice and zeroes in to the human heart of what you're thinking and what's internal as well. He goes on in verse 31 to talk about divorce. He says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Here's the picture I want you to see. Whether it's the Old Testament, whether it's the New Testament epistles, whether it's Jesus himself and the Gospels, 
God has a very narrowly defined sexual ethic for human beings. And what I want you to hear throughout this whole exchange, and then going back now to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, is that in so many of our conversations and discussions about homosexuality and sexuality in American culture today, especially in the church, it's an us versus them mentality. And somehow what we have done and convinced ourselves is that somehow those people out there are somehow more unholy and more unrighteous than we are because they're doing something that's just unnatural. But when you look at the totality of the scriptures, what I believe that you will see God as well as his son, as well as his apostles say, is that every one of us is a sexual sinner. Whether it is the lust in your heart, whether it's the enticement of another man or another woman, whether that lust is towards a heterosexual desire or towards a homosexual desire, what the Bible shows us here, ladies and gentlemen, is every single one of us is in the same sexual boat before God. Now, God will judge all unrepentant sexual sin. Adultery, sexual immorality, and practicing homosexuals. Now, what many in our culture want to do is they want to make the Bible say something it just simply does not say or to support what it simply does not support. And so you will hear revisionist scholars and more progressive theologians who want to go back to the original text and convince you of why Leviticus 18 doesn't mean what Leviticus 18 says. Or why Romans 1 doesn't mean what Romans 1 actually says. Or why Jesus, uh, just because he didn't speak on homosexuality explicitly, that somehow he didn't talk about male and female in a monogamous marriage. For example, Dr. Nicholas Walterstorff, he's a professor of philosophy at Yale University, just a couple of weeks ago spoke at a Christian Reformed church in Grand Rapids, Michigan at an event sponsored by a group called One Body. And this group advocates for full inclusion in the church of people who are LGBT, including those living in monogamous, committed relationships. And he said this, speaking of Romans 1. Can we generalize from this passage and say that Paul is saying that God says homosexual activity is always wrong? There is a night and day difference between what Paul describes... And the same-sex couples I know. And so what this very educated intellectual is doing is he is appealing to anecdotal evidence. He is appealing to experiential evidence only to come to his conclusion. But even liberal and or gay scholars recognize the universal condemnation of homosexual acts in the Bible. And this is where we as people have to appreciate intellectual honesty. We've got to appreciate that and recognize that wherever it comes in our society, whether we agree with their position or not. The gay Dutch scholar, Pim Pronk, says this after admitting that many Christians are eager to see homosexuality supported by the Bible. He states it plainly. In this case, that support is lacking. Wherever homosexual intercourse is mentioned in Scripture, it is condemned. Rejection is a foregone conclusion. Assessment of it nowhere constitutes a problem. 
And even revisionist scholar Dan Ovia acknowledges this. The biblical texts that deal with homosexual practice condemn it unconditionally. These are two men who without question, are either gay themselves or come from a more progressive standpoint when it comes to homosexual relationships and gay marriage. And they are admitting the fact that the Bible simply says what it says. So in order to morally justify homosexual practice as an acceptable sexual ethic, one must go outside of the Bible to do so. Now, from a cultural standpoint, from a secular standpoint... That is completely permissible. But from a Christian perspective, it simply is not. And so as people who love God and who follow Jesus and believe the Bible to be true, this morning what I want you to see from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, is that God will judge every unrepentant sexual sin. But I also want to give you good news this morning. Because that's the point where many Christians stop. I also want you to see that God will also forgive any repentant sexual sinner. God will forgive any repentant sexual sinner. I love verse 11. It is such a beautiful contrast. Because Paul talks about the severity of our sin. And he talks about how each and every one of us. Whether a heterosexual disposition or a homosexual disposition. Every single one of us stands guilty before God. And will be punished and will be judged before him one day. But then he gives us the great news in verse 11. He says, and such were some of you. Past tense. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Here's the picture. Every single one of us on planet Earth today is a broken sexual sinner. Have we made that point loudly and clearly this morning? Not a single one of us is better than our neighbor in our chairs this morning. Not a single one of us is better than our neighbor on the streets or in our apartments or our dorm rooms this morning. But since we are all treading on equal ground at the foot of the cross and before the throne room of God, we also have an equal qualification and an equal means through which we can be accepted before God. The same grace that saves the heterosexual sinner is the same grace of Jesus Christ that saves the homosexual sinner. We're all equal at the foot of the cross and God will forgive us regardless of our sexual sin. You may be saying, Chris, you don't know what's in my past. You're right, I don't. But I can almost promise you it wouldn't surprise me. And I can probably promise you, generally, I've probably heard it before. No matter how vile you think you are, And no matter how much you may have been alienated by Christians in the past, I want you to hear the hope and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning that none of us is so sexually far gone that we are hopeless before a kind and merciful and gentle Savior in Jesus Christ. God will forgive any repentant sexual sinner. Now, Let me switch gears for a moment with that being laid as our foundation. 
That's our theological foundation this morning, ladies and gentlemen, regardless of the sexual sin. Now, let's think about homosexuality for a moment, and particularly homosexual practice, and even more specifically, gay marriage. There are three basic Christian responses that we now can take in culture. There might be more, but for the sake of our argument this morning, let me show you three. Number one, we could conform. We could conform. Christians could simply say, you know what? Culture has changed. The whims of the times are different. And I really have some great friends, or is it, I have a brother, or I have a cousin, or a favorite uncle or aunt. And, and they are gay, and they are in a practicing, committed, monogamous relationship. Who am I to tell them differently? That temptation is so there. I mean, I have to tell you that from a human perspective, I understand those arguments. I understand that from a cultural sense, from a relational sense, that's very persuasive. And it's very tempting to say, I don't want to be the only one. I don't want to be labeled the bigot. I don't want to be known as the guy who's casting the stones. So we could conform like Brandon and Jen Hatmaker have even here in the last couple of weeks. If you've been following news feeds or if you read uh, online reports in Christian circles, Jen Hatmaker is a star on HGTV. She has also written several Christian books. She and her husband are very, uh, very great with social advocacy, especially on race issues and adoption issues. There are so many things that Brandon and Jen do that are just laudable in the Christian church for which we should be thankful. Uh, but their mercy and grace has gone so far to the point now that this, uh, in the past couple of weeks, Jen gave an interview where she said that couples living in monogamous homosexual marriages or relationships, it can be a holy thing in the eyes of God. And goes on to explain it even further. And then Brandon went on Facebook and, and gave a whole hermeneutic of why the Bible does not mean exactly what the Bible means. We can be so tempted to conform and just fall in line with our friends and with our family members and with our politicians. But then we have a lot of organizations, a lot of institutions who are saying, no, we, we can't conform. Uh, like, for example, the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, the CCCU. Uh, they have said that gay marriage and issues of sexuality is a non-negotiable. In other words, it's a core commitment. Meaning that there are many things in the Christian faith that we can disagree on, like baptism or church membership uh, or, or uh, women in ministry, things of that sort. There are many things in the Christian faith that we may disagree on in principle, but they are minor doctrines. But what so many Christian institutions are doing is saying, no, 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 uh, as far as core commitments go, a biblical sexual ethic is one of our core commitments. And we can't compromise and we can't conform to the world on these things. InterVarsity Christian Fellowship just recently did the same thing and, and affirming the biblical sexual ethic, world vision. Some of you support children through world vision. We should be happy to know that they have affirmed uh, biblical sexuality as a core commitment. Christianity Today, the largest Christian newspaper, uh, Christian magazine in the country, they have called uh, biblical sexual ethics a core commitment. And the Anglican Communion, the Anglican Church, has actually censured its American wing because the changes they made on marriage, in their words, quote, represent a fundamental departure from the faith. 
So one response we could have to all that's going on around us in the Supreme Court decision last year and the relationships that we are building and the people who are in our lives is we could just simply conform and just be like the rest of the world. But the Bible would say for us as Christians, that's not an option. Secondly, we can protest. We can protest. And there are a lot of conservative Christians who are very good at this. We're very good at mobilizing to the polls. We're very good at, at making very nice posters that, that say all sorts of biblical truths and some of them very offensive to the outside world. And we will march up and down the streets. We're very good at posting memes on our Facebook pages or our Instagram uh, feeds. But as I said after the Supreme Court decision last year, you will never see Pastor Chris standing in a picket line. You will never see me charging the street, Merrimack Street or Market Street, holding a sign. You won't see me posting a meme that just prods and pokes my gay neighbor. And here's why. What good will it do for me to speak with a loud voice and put something as loudly as I can on the internet and get 10,000 likes from fellow Christians while at the same time creating 100 more degrees of separation from me and my gay neighbor. Christians can protest, but I would ask you respectfully, church, how well has that worked for us? How well has that worked for the cause of the gospel? How many gay lives have been transformed and redeemed by the gospel because of our loud voices? You see, we have convinced ourselves that if we just say something with, a, with as, enough energy or with a, enough gumption or get enough likes, if we just pound our fists loudly enough that somehow God is more pleased with us than the person next door who might seem a little more passive. We can protest. But I'm not sure, I'm not convinced that that is the best way to be a missionary to our culture. Thirdly, and this is where I would encourage us to be, a third response that we could have is we can engage. We can engage. Now, there are several different definitions of this term, so let me pull together what I mean by it. One definition is this, to get and keeps, keep someone's attention. If you're with me, clap your hands. Okay, so 50% of the room I've successfully engaged, okay? So see, I, I, I have gotten your attention, and prayerfully I am keeping your attention for about the next 20, 25 minutes or so, okay? We can engage to get and keep someone's attention or to induce to participate. So for example, the teacher could say, I engage the shy boy in conversation, Here's what I believe that Christians have done on the topic of homosexuality over the last several decades. Very few of us actually have a friendship with an actual gay person. In the church, we have not created a good atmosphere where one of our sons or one of our daughters who experiences same-sex attraction, and by the way, statistics would show us that some of you in this room are going to experience that in your life. We have not created an environment where people who experience that attraction or experience that struggle can even have an open conversation for fear of shunning and rejection. We as Christians should be the people, we should be the grand marshals of, of the conversation parade. 
of saying, let me engage you in conversation. Let me ask you questions about your life. May I walk through with you what the Bible does actually say about this topic? Could we actually pray for our neighbor? Could we actually serve our neighbor? I'm going to talk a little bit more on that in just a moment. Christians should engage. We should find people who identify on this side of things or identify with this struggle in their lives, and we should engage their life. We should have them at our dinner table. We should have them around the table in our game nights. Christians can engage. And my prayer is that's what Mill City Church will be known as. We're the church who loves Jesus, but we also love Jesus so much that we love people enough. Rather than to create degrees of separation, we want to create degrees of commonality so we can bring them to the table, love them, engage them with the same gospel that has transformed our lives. Now, what I want to do for the remainder of our time, some of these I'm going to go very quickly because I know our time is short is I want to walk through with you some gospel practices for engaging our neighbors. And in answering the question, is God anti-gay? Let me sum this up by saying this. God is no more anti-gay than he is anti-adultery. He is anti-adultery. He is anti-gay for sex. He is anti-masturbation. He is anti a whole host of sexual immorality that falls outside of the biblical sexual ethic. But what I hope that you will see is that God is very pro-people, regardless of their sexual sin, and he wants to redeem them and bring them back to himself. Now, we as people, we as Christian people, we have a duty to love people well. Now, yes, we should love them well enough to share with them truth. But we should also love them well enough to engage them in a respectful manner. So what I want to do is I want to give you 10 gospel practices for engaging our neighbors, no matter what their sexual sin may be. Number one, know that this is a gospel issue before it's a sexual issue. Know that this is a gospel issue before it's a sexual issue. What we have done in the church is we get into all the arguments of are they born that way, are they not, this is just a choice. This, we're in the weeds at this point. It's not the point. Sex is not the point. The point is the gospel. When we get into human arguments, we get ourselves in trouble. Bring it back to the text. When you look at Ephesians 5, when Paul talks about the mystery of husband and wife, man and woman in a marriage, he says, ultimately, this has to do with the gospel. This has to do with Christ and his church. So, so let me give you the ultimate why. If you're here and you're wondering, what, are, what is the problem with Christians? Why are they so closed-minded? Why can't they just accept this like everybody else in society does? Let me, let me tell you what the deal is. It's ultimately about the gospel. What the Bible teaches us, that a husband portrays Christ to the world. And a wife portrays the church to the world. And as they interact with one another in their marriage relationship, they are showing the world a picture, a metaphor of how the church of Jesus Christ submits to and follows the lordship of Jesus. And how, the, how Jesus, as a loving 
Savior and loving leader shepherds yields uh, uh, shepherds and nourishes his church as they yield to his loving leadership that's what a marriage pictures and then in the sexual union between a husband and a wife when they come together to form one flesh at consummation of that relationship they are picturing the oneness and the union that each of us as Christ followers now has with the godhead and our salvation and our identity spiritual identity That's what's at stake here. And so when we're talking about things that fall outside of the parameters of that biblical sexual ethic, it's because nothing else tells the story. A man and a woman outside of the marriage bed doesn't tell the story. A guy alone in his dorm room in front of a computer doesn't tell the story. A woman and a woman doesn't tell the story. A man and a man doesn't tell the gospel story. But a man and a woman in the confines of the marriage bed tells the gospel story. Know that this is a gospel issue before it's a sexual issue. Number two, know that this is a people issue before it's a political issue. There are some in the Christian church who only see this in terms of politics. In terms of the Supreme Court, in terms of the Constitution, let us not forget that real people's lives are at stake here. That real people's eternal destinies are at stake. That these are real people. These are people's sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and cousins. They have flesh and blood and hearts just like we do. And so let us be careful that we do not speak on these issues in such a way that dehumanizes people and makes them less or just political pawns in an argument. Know that it's a people issue before it's a political issue. Number three, we have to think missionally before thinking politically. Our eternal citizenship trumps our earthly citizenship. You've heard me talk about this Over and over again, we talked about this a few weeks ago when I talked about the election. That means that we have to think like missionaries. This Christmas, I will go to East Asia for Christmas. I have not spent Christmas in America since 2005. Because I've been in East Asia every year since, sharing the gospel with students and adults who have literally never heard the name of Jesus before. And when I go to that part of the world in a a communist led uh, country. It is an atheistic country. And I know that when I go there, there are just some things, culturally speaking, that I should not expect as an American visiting that country. Because I'm a missionary now. I got to think missionally. I got to think context. I got to think like a missionary. Ladies and gentlemen, No matter what you may think or what you've been told your whole life, America is not a Christian nation. It is not a Christian country. This is not God's next theocracy. We are living in a land of Gentiles who are lost and who are sheep without a shepherd They build worldly systems promoting human good and what they think should happen for the good of all mankind. We've got to think like missionaries going into another country and start approaching our neighbors like our good missionaries do in China or Russia or the Middle East or South America. 
Think missionally more than you think politically. Number four, let your conduct promote mutual respect. God has not charged us to get in with getting in the face of our gay neighbor. He has charged us to be honorable and respectful towards anyone we come into contact with. That, that is why, as, as if someone in our circles is not only experiencing same-sex attraction, but let's just say that they have married their gay partner. The Christian man or woman who lives next door to them or works in the next cubicle next to them or is a lab partner with them at the university... We should be known as the most gentle, humble, respectful person towards them that they know. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. But here's the big clause. And do this with gentleness and respect. You see, when the Supreme Court decision came down last year in the United States of America, I mean, I know so many Christians who were so concerned. I mean, and I understand the gravity of it. I understand the confusion of it and just not knowing what to do with it and to grapple with it. But rather than being scared or rather than be concerned, I, w- I was thinking, what an opportunity. What an opportunity we now have to stop fighting this issue because the law of the land the law the supreme law of our land has spoken let's just get this issue done with move on with it and now can the church just simply love our neighbor and point them towards the gospel and rather than being political advocates and members of political action committees what if the church of Jesus Christ just simply said I'm going to be salt and light and I'm going to be gentle and respectful to my neighbor and I'm going to point them towards Jesus And I'm going to build relationships with them. And I'm going to start apologizing for some of the sins of the past and how we've engaged this demographic. Let your conduct promote mutual respect. And let me show you some ways that you can do this. So number five, be willing to make concessions. Be willing to make concessions. When I'm at the university, I understand that that my position, I am very much in the minority. I'm very much in the minority and the Department of Student Affairs, where campus ministry reports to. I'm in the minority basically anywhere I go on UMass Lowell's campus. But I have great relationships at the university. And there are some people who work in the administration who actually are people who would say, I'm gay. There are people who work in the administration university who have now married their partner. And so I have a choice to make in how I'm going to engage them and how I'm going to communicate with them. And one of the things that I have just chosen to do is to make concessions. Is to be able to say, I want you to know that there are people, there are people in my denomination. There are people who identify as evangelical Christians across America. And they've fumbled this football. And they've said things that they probably shouldn't have said. And, and they did it in a well-meaning sense. They, they were well-intentioned in doing it. But, but in saying it, I understand how that would be hurtful. And how that would come across to you. And I just want you to know that I'm sorry for that. And I don't identify with that. Can I just make that concession to you? Ladies and gentlemen, that's humility. That's engaging our neighbor. 
And that's promoting mutual respect. Now, now this one also cuts the other way as well. Because if there is someone here who sympathizes with the gay point of view, or if you yourself are someone who would be, say, I have same-sex attraction, and, and, and I would really like to act out upon this, and I'm not sure that I agree with you, Chris. See, this cuts both ways. You see, we have to make concessions, but, but, but so do they. But we should be modeling it. They should be taking their cues from us to show what civil conversation and respect and gentleness all look like. Number six, don't expect behavior before belief. Don't expect behavior before belief. Uh, There are those of us in the church who, it's not just this sin, it's any sin. It could be people who have an addiction. It could be people who are drinking, people who are partying. It could be people who are womanizing. I mean, you just fill in the gap of anything in their life. Oftentimes, what we want to do is we want to put the salvation cart before the horse. We want them to be sanctified before they're justified. But Paul, back in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that in the Christian church, in the Christian faith, That God justifies us at the moment of our repentance and faith. And that makes us right with God and brings us into his kingdom. And then there's a lifetime of sanctification that happens to make us look more like Jesus and follow the commands of Jesus. I am so thankful that because of God's grace in my life, that 38-year-old Chris James does not look exactly like 16-year-old Chris James. Because when I was a young teenager and only been in the church for just a year and a half or so, I can tell you that I did not exactly model Christian maturity. And and I can also tell you that behind closed doors, I hope my grandmother's not listening to this podcast, there were a whole host of things going on behind closed doors that little model citizen Christopher was was, was participating in, I shouldn't have been participating in. But what's happened? Sanctification. And we've got to be careful that as Christians, we're not looking at our gay neighbors and expecting them to act like Christians and to get their house in order before they ever walk in the doors of the church and they're actually justified and walk with Jesus. So don't expect behavior before belief. Next, distinguish between attraction and action. Distinguish between attraction and action. This has been one of the most helpful things for me to understand and grapple with as I, as I increasingly learn how to walk alongside of people on this issue and also speak to congregations like ours. When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, every single sin Paul talks about here is a sin of action. It's practicing He even says men who practice homosexuality. He didn't say men who have same-sex attraction or women who are attracted to other women. I want to speak to that person who might be in this room. And you can't explain it, but you're a young woman, and for as long as you can remember, you have always found other women to be beautiful. And at some point, whenever all the hormones started kicking and you went through puberty, That went to another level, and then you were sexually and romantically attracted to those beautiful women. Or to the same thing with the young man who 
just finds himself in lust over other men, but you don't know what to do with it. Here's what the Bible would tell us. Remember how I said that every one of us is a sexual sinner? The sin nature manifests itself differently in all of us. Even for those who are heterosexual, there is a wiring towards certain acts. There are certain things that you find more pleasurable than others. Some things that this person are just repulsed by, you actually like. I don't want to be crude, but you know what I'm talking about. Every one of us is wired a certain way. Sin has broken us. Remember that biblical sexual ethic God has given? Sin has tainted every one of us. And so if you're here today and you have that attraction, I just want to say lovingly to you, that's the way the sin nature has manifested itself in you. And that's the primary, which are one of the primary ways in which you're broken. But the answer to that is not to go and practice and to act out on how you're wired. Just like any other person who struggles with any host of other sins, just because you struggle with it doesn't give you license to go act out on it and just say, I'm just an angry person. It's just who I am. No, we reject that. So we have to distinguish between attraction and action. Let me give you a little dose of hope as well. One of the greatest ways that you could show the world that Jesus is better is be just like the single people in our church. Single people like myself who have just said, for the sake of the kingdom, I'm not going to marry. Or, or for the single woman who has said, I might want to be married, but I haven't gotten it yet, but I'm just going to love Jesus and serve him in the process. That shows that Jesus is better than sex. And it shows that your identity is not found in your sexuality. It's one of the greatest lies of our culture. Distinguished between attraction and action. Eight, distinguished between acceptance and approval. Distinguished between acceptance and approval. I will accept my gay neighbor as a gay man. I will ex accept my lesbian friend as a lesbian. Because they are human beings made in the image of God. And they deserve the dignity of human respect. Although I may not approve of everything they do in their lives. We can accept people as people. While at the same time not approve of their life or everything in their life. And we can point to numerous examples how this is the reality in everybody else. I would hope that you would accept me as your pastor, although you may not approve of every decision that I make or we make as elders in our church, right? We accept one another all the time without approving of every single thing or every single decision. Nine, remember that we were created for something more than sex. Remember that we were created for something more than sex. Isaiah 43 tells us that we were created for the glory of God we were created for worship. We were created to find our identities in Him. And what sin has done is whether it is through sex, whether it is through career, whether it's through money, relationship, you name it. It could even be family. There, there exists a host, a plethora of things on earth through which 
in which we are tempted to find our ultimate identity. But God has not created us for any one of those things. He has created us ultimately to glorify Him in and through all of those things. And when it comes to sexual ethics, the way in which we glorify God with our sex lives or with our sexuality is by abiding by His narrow parameters for it. And we do this if we are young heterosexuals before marriage in a dating relationship by not going there. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We do this as married people who say, I may be attracted to this other woman, but this is the woman God gave me, therefore she's off limits. We do this when we're alone in our homes or our dorm rooms and we're there with our computer and we say, no, I will not click enter. And we do this when we struggle with same-sex attraction and we say, I won't go there. I won't act out on it because it would, dis- it would dishonor God and it would dishonor my testimony as a Christian. You were created, I was created, your neighbor was created for something more and greater than sex. Lastly, pray for and serve your gay neighbor. Pray for and serve your gay neighbor. Many of you know Andy Haynes. Uh, He is my immediate supervisor at the Baptist Convention of New England. He directs all of the collegiate ministries uh, for New England, and he's one of my closest friends in ministry. And Andy and his family have always been people who have intentionally loved their neighborhoods and have intentionally sought to serve their neighbors regardless of who they are. And when they lived in Providence, Rhode Island, by God's sovereign design, um, the house they bought was right next door to a gay couple. And it was a middle-aged uh, couple named Bob and Gus. And, and Bob and Gus were very uh, proud of their lives. They're proud of their lifestyle. They were very proud of their relationship. And then moves in this Southern Baptist minister right next door. With a wife and three beautiful little blonde-haired children. Now, you will find that little blonde-haired children can cover a multitude of disagreements. And what Andy and Amy chose to do is they just sought to love, pray for, and serve Bob and Gus. And so when the wintertime came, uh, they worked. They had, a, they had a long commute. So when it would snow, Andy would take Micah who was only six or seven years old at the time, and they would go and they would shovel Bob and Gus's driveway so that when they got home from work, they wouldn't have to do that and have a place to park their car. Um, Taking trash out, um, baking things, just building an honest relationship. And they had built such a relationship that Bob and Gus would then go on vacations, and they would even go vacation to places like Italy, and they would bring them back mementos from the Vatican, you know, because um, all Christians are the same, right? So the... You give the, the uh, Southern Baptist pastor uh, 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 rosary beads or things like that. As far as we know, Bob and Gus have never professed faith in Jesus. But regardless of whether they ever profess faith in Jesus Christ, Andy and Amy Haynes, as well as their three children, can rest their heads on their pillows at night in peace and a clear conscience of knowing that they prayed for it, they prayed for them, And they served their neighbors. Not because 
they were gay. Not in spite of the fact that they were gay, but just because they were their neighbors. Brothers and sisters, this is what God has called us to do. This is what God's called us to do. Rosaria Butterfield, who I would commend this book to you. If you don't read any other book this year, go get this book. Rosaria Butterfield was a professor of women's studies and has her PhD in queer theory, was a tenured professor at Syracuse University and was in a committed monogamous lesbian relationship with her lover. And God intersected her life with a Presbyterian pastor there in Syracuse. And that pastor and his wife welcomed her into his home after they had gotten into an intellectual conversation via the the newspaper. And, And through all of this, Butterfield becomes a Christian. And she leaves her gay lover. And today, and this isn't the path for every single person, but today she's the wife of a Presbyterian pastor. Every now and then, God has a little dose of irony, right? Here's what she says in her book. I'll just read this statement. The integrity of our relationships matters more than the boldness of our words. The integrity of our relationships matters more than the boldness of our words. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter if someone's gay or straight. It doesn't matter if they're single or married, young or old, lost or saved. That statement covers all. Is God anti-gay? God is a holy God. And he wants his people to be holy. And he wants to save more and more people and bring them out of a whole host of backgrounds. And he wants to heal them from a whole host of brokenness. So that he can just add more and more trophies to his bookshelves of grace. That's what he wants you to be. Regardless of where you're coming from this morning. So I hope and I pray that you'll hear the message of the gospel today. Let me pray for you. And then we're going to sing in response. And just sing out an ecstatic praise of this grace-giving God. Father, I thank you today. I thank you for your grace in my life. I shouldn't be standing here. There are so many things that I should be off doing based on where I come from and where I was raised. But Father, you've made me a trophy of your grace. And I just stand in awe of that and thanksgiving towards you. I thank you for the testimonies that are across this room. And how you have delivered people from adultery. You have delivered people from divorce. You have delivered people from pornography. You have delivered us from lust. And Father, yes, you deliver us from homosexuality. And so, Father, regardless of how we're wired today sexually, regardless of how we are broken because of sin, my prayer, Father, is that we would run towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. And rather than fighting you, and rather than arguing with you, Rather than contending with you, I pray, Father, that we would fall at your feet and say, oh, God, would you give me mercy because I want to be a trophy of your grace, because I need your grace. I repent of my sin. I'm tired of doing it 
And I'm tired of accepting it and giving approval of it. Father, I pray that there would be someone or someones in this room today who would say, I want to follow Jesus so that you can make me into who I was designed to be. Father, may that testimony resound from across this room and may all of us find our hope in the saving grace and gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.